Engaging presentations on the most urgent problem of our day and what you can do about it. Now, the End Abortion Podcast by Priests for Life. Good evening, friends. Father Frank Pavone here, National Director of Priests for Life. Welcome to Praying for America. Great to be with you tonight. And I wanted to share with you tonight some history and understanding of the filibuster in the United States Senate. A very, very important topic to understand because it is what is protecting this country in many ways uh, from uh, even more disaster from the Democrats. And it's something that it is important for us to understand how it came about, how it works, and why you have senators like Senator Joe Manchin from West Virginia strongly uh, supporting it and refusing to eliminate it although so many of his Democrat colleagues would like him to vote with them to do that. So we're going to look at all of that. Uh, but first, let's do as we always do and go to the scriptures and pray together. You can mention, and I invite you to mention, your own prayer intentions in the comments because praying for America includes praying for each other here on this broadcast. I want to go to Matthew chapter 8, starting in verse 5 with the healing of the centurion's servant. When Jesus entered Capernaum, a centurion approached him and appealed to him, saying, Lord, my servant is lying at home, paralyzed, suffering dreadfully. He said to him, I will come and cure him. The centurion said in reply, Lord, I am not worthy to have you enter under my roof. Only say the word and my servant will be healed. For I, too, am a person subject to authority, with soldiers subject to me. And I say to one, go, and he goes. And to another, come here, and he comes. And to my slave, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he was amazed and said to those following him, Amen, I say to you, in no one in Israel have I found such faith. I say to you, many will come from the east and the west, and will recline with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob at the banquet in the kingdom of heaven. But the children of the kingdom will be driven into the outer darkness, where there will be wailing and grinding of teeth. And Jesus said to the centurion, You may go. As you have believed, let it be done for you. And at that very hour, his servant was healed. Let us pray. Lord, say but the word, and our nation will be healed. Say but the word, and the damage that the Democrats have done to America and continue to do will be undone. Say but the word, and we will save our nation. Say but the word, and these elections will bring us many victories. Say but the word, and the destruction of our values and the indoctrination of our Children in their education will be reversed and say but the word and the sanctity of life will be restored in our land. Lord God, restore hope and strength to your people through your word. We know that all things are subject to you. You say the word, Lord Jesus. And the universe is created and the universe is redeemed and the universe is healed and the universe is resurrected. We thank you, Lord, today for the supreme confidence that this centurion showed in your power. 
And we praise you that you have given us the same confidence. May that confidence always resound in our minds, in our hearts, on our lips. May that confidence be passed on to our children and our grandchildren. May all our fellow citizens exercise that confidence as they work to save America and to make her great again and to do all the work that you have entrusted us to do. For you are Lord and you live and reign forever and ever. Amen. Well, friends, one of the things that's keeping us from deep damage um, from the Democrat Party and its agenda even deeper damage than is being done now, is the legislative filibuster in the United States Senate that makes it practically necessary for them to have 60 votes to pass legislation rather than just 51. Because the the filibuster, legislative filibuster, gives to the minority party in this case, well, it's actually evenly divided, as you know, Uh, The reason the Democrats have functional control is because uh, uh, of the tie-breaking role of the vice president. So it's a 50-50 Senate. If all Democrats vote as a block and all Republicans vote as a block, the vice president has to break the tie. That means that if legislation only required a simple majority of 100 senators, which is 51, they could get a lot of things done without a single Republican uh, going along with it. A lot of damaging things, including, by the way, the legislation that they recently tried twice to get through, which would eliminate any kind of regulations or restrictions on abortion, a topic we talk about frequently here since that's my full-time ministry. But they haven't been able to do that. They haven't been able to push abortion on demand through on a national level because of the filibuster. Namely, that if the minority objects to having a vote on a particular piece of legislation, but rather wants the debate to continue, that that vote cannot happen. And uh, to overcome that pause, to overcome or to close the debate, well, you've got to have 60 votes. Let's look at the history of this. Uh, and, uh, and and talk about why it's a good idea to continue to maintain this, this filibuster. Constitution indicates certain circumstances where more than a simple majority vote in Congress is needed to do certain things. Those things include, for example, overriding a veto. So a president vetoes a piece of legislation that Congress passes, if not a simple majority, but two-thirds of both the House and the Senate vote to override, well then, that veto is overridden and the bill becomes law. Ratifying treaties is another thing. It requires not a simple majority, but two-thirds of the Senate. Um, What else? Uh, Expelling a member of Congress. Two-thirds of whatever chamber the member belongs to uh, would have to vote, not, not a simple majority. Convicting uh, a, uh, someone on impeachment charges requires two-thirds of the Senate. And then, of course, constitutional amendments to propose and pass through the Congress requires two-thirds of the House and the Senate, and then it has to go 
and be approved by three quarters of the states. That's a lot of consensus. And that word consensus is an important operative word to understand what's going on here when we talk about the filibuster. Now, these are the things I just mentioned that the Constitution indicates require what's called a super move. Uh, I say 51 in reference to the Senate because that has 100, but one, a half plus one is the majority, right? Um, but the Constitution also provides that the uh, House, the chambers of Congress can change the rules by which they operate by a simple majority vote. And that's, uh, uh, that's key to understanding the filibuster as well, because the rules have changed a number of times when it comes to this. I want to go to the board now and show you with the aid of the, of the board a, couple, a little bit of the history here. So when the original Senate met, 1789, there were rules, okay, regarding moving the question. So this is the first concept to understand, moving the question. In other words, a matter comes up to the Senate for debate. Of course, the House has its own debate and they follow uh, their own rules. So here we're talking about the Senate. And um, they debate it. Now, how long do they debate it? That's the question. How long do they debate a question before actually coming to a vote and deciding is this going to be passed as a, as a bill or not? So uh, the process for moving the previous question by a majority vote was introduced in the first Senate. So they said, okay, look, we have discussions about a lot of issues. So let's decide to have a vote first as to whether we want to finish debating it, stop the discussion, and move on to actually vote on the measure. So that's what this vote was about. But then... It was the opinion of uh, the vice president at that time, Aaron Burr, to say, you know what, that seems redundant. So after he uh, left office, this was, this was eliminated. The need to vote on moving the question was eliminated in 1806. So what you then had was open debate, open-ended. In other words, there wasn't any rule for when you would stop debate and actually vote on the issue. So let's say it was an issue, or let's say it was a bill that was proposed that the minority party in the Senate didn't like. And they said, you know, if we vote on this, it's going to pass. So being that there's no process for moving the previous question, let's just keep debating. And this way here, if we don't have the votes to say no to the, to the thing that's being proposed, we could in practice prevent it, not because we have a majority, but because we can keep debate going forever. And that's the notion of filibuster. And we use the word, of course, in common parlance to talk about just uh, on delaying something more and more and more and never getting to uh, a conclusion of the of the issue okay so that's where it stood 
until the 20th century. So 1917, we had a, um, the introduction into the Senate of cloture. Now, this is from a French word, okay, to close, okay, to terminate. Cloture means stop debating or at least set a definite limit. Okay, you can debate for another day or for another 30 hours or whatever it may be. Stop debating and decide. Cloture actually is a good thing to be able to incorporate into our day-to-day lives, right? Sometimes we think about things too long and we have to decide certain things. Okay, cloture was introduced then in 1917. And what happened then was for several decades, the exact rules about how to bring about cloture varied, but the idea was now there, that there was a process, whether it was a majority vote or two-thirds vote, there was a process in place to end debate and vote so that things were not strung along forever. Now, it was used rarely, but it was when the civil rights era came upon us, okay, the the debates of the 1960s, the civil rights era, and the objection of Democrat senators to civil rights legislation, most famously Senator Strom Thurmond, member of the Southern Democrat Party, filibustered the Civil Rights Act of 1957 for over 24 hours. This is when, by filibustering, they would just uh, stop all Senate business and stand up on the floor and say, okay, we're not going to vote on this uh, until I finish um, uh, saying what I have to say. And he would just go on and did go on and on and on, and other senators would do similar tactics in um, installing in those years there, in the late 50s, early 60s, various forms of civil rights legislation. And then this led then to some more debate among the senators as to exactly what should the rules be for invoking cloture. And the rules changed. Okay, we don't have to go into a high level of detail here, but just so that you you get an idea here. The rules have changed in various ways, uh, whereby for a while it was two-thirds of the voting senators were needed to um, invoke cloture, to stop debate and actually vote on a question. That's a high bar uh, to reach. So then at a certain point, it was changed to three-fifths. And this is where we get 60 out of 100. In other words, if 60 senators say, okay, enough discussion, let's vote on it, you have cloture. But three-fifths, notice, 60 out of 100. Because there's two ways that you can count these, um, these, these percentages of the senators, okay, if you want something done. You can say three-fifths of those who are voting. So let's say some senators are are absent. So in that case, 
Well, you would only have to have three-fifths of the ones who are actually voting. But what the rule has changed to, and it's been this way since 1975, is that it's three-fifths of all the senators who are duly elected and sworn in. So if there are no vacancies, you've got 100 senators. So it's always, as long as you have 100 senators currently serving, you need 60. It's three-fifths of all the duly sworn senators, not of just those voting at a certain time. So they could just sit back and not vote. Say, okay, yeah, well, you don't have 60 votes for cloture. They could just sit back and do nothing. And you still don't uh, don't get it unless, um, unless you have 60 um, uh, in favor of cloture. That's where we stand now. Cloture about what? And that's where a few distinctions have to be made and a little more history comes in. Um, and let me just outline this for you very briefly. Understanding the filibuster. So if a, and again, the, the filibuster here, of course, is benefiting the minority party. It, 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 and there's actually a lot of um, checks and balances and rules and, and processes in our system of government that protects the views of the minority and doesn't, doesn't just leave them completely without any voice or influence. To get to cloture, as we said, 60 votes is, are needed. But in order to do what? Up until relatively recently, this was needed to confirm the president's appointments. So, in other words, the Constitution provides that the president appoints certain people, for example, cabinet positions and other, other uh, executive positions, and, most importantly, federal judges the Senate has to confirm them. The president appoints them. The Senate confirms them. Now, remember, in the federal court system, you have three levels. You have the Supreme Court. You have the appellate courts or the circuit. Circuit courts. And then you have the district courts on the lowest level. Okay? And there are the most of these, and then there are 12 or 13 of these, and then you have one Supreme Court. So all the judges on all these courts, each, get, each one gets appointed by the president and confirmed by the Senate. And uh, up until relatively recently, in order to have a vote on these appointments, you had to have 60 votes to end debate. And then, of course, besides appointments, you have the all-important task of legislation. Now, should the Senate treat votes about presidential appointments different than it treats votes on legislation? It would make sense that it would treat them somewhat differently simply because 
the appointments are dealing specifically with a prerogative of the president to appoint somebody. Senate, yes, has to confirm, but that's a different thing than an action being taken arising from the Senate to pass a piece of legislation that the Senate will either pass or not pass. That same legislation has to be either passed or not passed by the House and then signed or vetoed by the president. So what happened was that in 20, first of all, in 2005, discussion started, debate began in among the Republicans in Congress as to maybe we should get rid of the 60-vote threshold for judicial appointments. At that point, no change was made because the disagreements were uh, diffused by the so-called Gang of 14. Uh, there was an agreement, bipartisan agreement made. So then, then we fast forward to 2013. Now, again, this is getting us into relatively recent history. What happened was that the Democrats were in control and they got rid of the need for the 60-vote threshold for presidential appointments including federal judges, okay, but except for the Supreme Court. So federal judges at the district level and at the appellate level could now be confirmed, starting in 2013, by a simple majority in the Senate, 51 votes. Supreme Court nominees still required 60 votes for cloture, 60 votes, in other words, to proceed to the final vote, to end debate. That was changed in 2017 by the Republicans. And that's when, of course, by that time, President Trump was in office, and that's when Neil Gorsuch, his first appointment to the Supreme Court, was up for a vote in the Senate, and the Senate Republicans decided to do in 2017 what the Democrats, who had a majority back in 2013, did, and that was eliminate the filibuster for judicial appointments this time in 2017, including the Supreme Court. That, by the way, is how we got the three Supreme Court justices appointed by President Trump confirmed, because this filibuster was taken away. So as of 2017, you only need a simple majority of the senators to confirm a Supreme Court justice as well as any other federal judges as well as other presidential appointments. So the only thing left then under the rules of the filibuster and the 60-vote cloture rule is legislation. And that's where we talk about the legislative filibuster. You need, if the minority, now if the minority doesn't object to something, you go ahead and vote on it and the majority, simple majority wins. But if the minority party objects to a piece of legislation, now you don't, it's no longer where you have to stand on the floor of the Senate and talk for 24 hours straight. That's not the, 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 the scenario anymore. It doesn't stop all Senate business to filibuster something. All a senator has to do is, no, uh, is, is just note their intent 
uh, to filibuster and uh, proceed. The business proceeds as usual, but that matter does not come to cloture. It does not come to a final vote until 60 agree that it should. And that's where legislation stands at the moment. So again, going back to the abortion example, this, this extreme bill that would impose abortion on demand on all the states and not even let states uh, require that parents, for example, should consent to the abortion of their minor age daughter uh, if she were to go for one. Um, it, 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 most Americans, of course, want uh, parental involvement and most uh, members of Congress do as well. But the point is that uh, this bill would eliminate any kind of reasonable restrictions like this it didn't even get to a final vote because it didn't have 60 because the, the Democrats just have 50. And this issue, like many other issues now, is to split right down party lines. So the legislative filibuster is saving us from a lot of extreme things, including legislation they've introduced to change our elections, federalize our elections, right? That very dangerous bill was stopped because of the filibuster. And um, and all kinds of other radical ideas like packing the Supreme Court, although I don't think that would necessarily get the kind of support even just among the Democrats that it needs, um, that it would need to pass even under a simple majority. Now, there's one exception to this. There is a process called budget reconciliation. Okay, just make note of that one additional concept. And budget reconciliation, you can pass legislation with a simple majority, 51 votes. Now, but you just can't slap the term budget reconciliation on anything you want to pass. It has to have to do with budget issues. It has to have to do with spending issues. Now, if there's some kind of a difference of opinion, well, is this matter that we're going to vote on technically, does it fall under that category? That's where a very influential person comes in, the Senate parliamentarian. And you could make the argument that in certain circumstances, the Senate parliamentarian is the most important, the most powerful person in the United States because if a question arises and the Senate is about to vote and they have the majority votes for something and they want to pass it without the reaching this threshold for cloture and they say, oh, this is under budget reconciliation. I can only use budget reconciliation a limited number of times. You can't use it whenever you want. Okay, But the Senate parliamentarian then ends up being the one whose opinion is going to be taken as to whether a matter goes under budget reconciliation or not. Very, very important to understand this exception to the legislative filibuster. Let me go back here to the chair and we'll conclude with a couple of thoughts from Senator Manchin because uh, Joe Manchin from West Virginia, he's been saving, uh, saving us from a lot of from a lot of problems. He wrote a, um, as you might recall, back in April, he wrote a uh, an editorial in the Washington Post talking about why he wants the legislative filibuster to stay in place. Now look, talking about this, the filibuster, obviously, if you're in the minority party, you're going to want the filibuster. It benefits you. 
if you're in the majority party and you can you can't get your majority agenda through let's say you have like the democrats do now the white house you've got a president willing to sign legislation and you've actually got a majority both in the house and the senate willing to pass that legislation you know it's like you're 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 chomping at the bit you can't wait to get that thing passed it's like oh the only thing standing in the way is this filibuster now instead of having 51 votes i need 60 i don't have it i'm not going to get it can't we just get rid of that that filibuster and actually you can change the rules with a simple majority vote so the majority can change the rules to not require a supermajority and a majority in other words can take back power for itself by simply changing that rule as we saw that happened in regard to the presidential appointments but they don't have a majority willing to change that rule manchin is saying no senator cinema from arizona is likewise opposed to getting rid of the legislative filibuster why well god bless them uh, senator manchin's uh, op-ed here explains some of the reasons he says look this cuts both ways. You're in the majority today, you're in the minority tomorrow, and vice versa. Our system of government is set up in such a way that those in the minority always have some kind of a voice. It's the Senate itself is set up that way, so that the smallest state, like Rhode Island, has the same number of U.S. senators as the very largest states, like California. Every state has two senators. So everyone has a place at the table all the time, no matter how different your, your state might be, no matter how small your state might be, they have input. They can sway the way a vote is going to go. He wants to protect that input. And he said in this editorial, let me say it again to remove any shred of doubt. There is no circumstance in which I will vote to eliminate or weaken the filibuster. No circumstance. Okay. He said there's too many political games. Because if a piece of legislation is introduced that's just partisan, if one party, and the parties are so different, right, on so many issues, so different on so many values, so different in so many sharp ways on matters that are very, very impactful to and important to the American people. That if one party wants to push a piece of legislation through without any involvement of the other party whatsoever, we got to be careful when we allow that to happen. Simply because... It can make the country go back and forth between very different policy measures that have very deep implications from the highest to the lowest level of government. And it can make that pendulum be swinging when the country is as divided as it is now, swinging every few years, depending on the outcome of the elections, between one policy back to another, back to the previous, back to the other, not good for the country. Take, for example, if legislation affects 
how elections are conducted or or how the tax code is implemented or how regulations impact businesses. These things take a long time to implement down on a local level, and you're going to have the whole country swaying back and forth in very significant ways every few years if you don't have the filibuster. What the filibuster does, and what Senator Manchin, one of the points he's getting at is it forces more consensus. It forces more bipartisan cooperation, at least the effort at it. And you don't have bipartisan cooperation unless you have some consensus among the American people. So what the filibuster is aiming to do is to foster that consensus, that before there's a national policy, very, very different states with very different needs and very different priorities and very different values can find things that they're actually okay with as a matter of public policy. This is not easy, but it's something that moves people like Senator Manchin to continue to support the filibuster. It is, as I said, on many things, saving us right now from a lot of very disastrous policies that would, in fact, enjoy majority support among the Democrats. Thank God we have people standing firm on this. So that's it, friends. I wanted to give you a little bit of a deeper insight into the history and meaning and purpose of the filibuster. Let's pray. Father, we ask you to bless America. We thank you for Senator Manchin and Senator Sinema who who understand the importance of this uh, particular rule in, in protecting America from purely partisan policies and, uh, Lord, that it focuses and fosters more consensus. We ask you for more consensus, O oh God, on the part of the American people. Inspire the minds and hearts of the citizens to focus on not selfish ambition, but rather what is truly good for the country, not on factions, but on unity, uh, and in pursuing, Lord, uh, not just their own ideas, pursuing what is truly good uh, for the country in the light of your law. We ask you to bless all those who serve in the U.S. Senate and all those who serve in the U.S. House. We ask you to bless uh, all who are running for re-election now and all uh, those running for election for the first time. And all the voters, as we have more and more primaries taking place in the various states, uh, Lord, enlighten the voters and help them to, to, to vote based on a conviction of what is right for the country. And we sum up all our prayers and praises, and, and we include all the needs of our viewers as they've been expressed in the prayer requests by offering the Lord's Prayer. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Thank you, friends. Join me on social media at FR Frank Pavone on all the major platforms, starting with Truth Social. I hope you have your account there at Truth Social. I am at FR Frank Pavone and follow Right Side Broadcasting as well at RSB Network. And tune into our program again tomorrow. Please spread the word so that together we can pray for America. God bless you. 
This has been the End Abortion Podcast. To learn more, to help end abortion, and to connect with us on social media, visit endabortion.net.